Okay, Jesse, after the last episode, our family has successfully avoided yellow Gatorade forever. What's the story this week? A yield, love murder, and execution with personal ties to yours truly ends up turning into quite the modern murder mystery and a puzzling whodunit. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about accusations, mysteries, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thank you, all of you beautiful people that 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 did just that this week. I think we had like 10 over the weekend. It was crazy. I know. You guys are unbelievable. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are absolutely thrilled this week to welcome and shout out a new set of phenomenal patrons. And man, this is, we're just having a a banger week because we have a ton of new members to the Love Murder Club here as well. Megan O, Serenity W, and Brent E. Diana C, Haley W, and Michelle G. Ashley D, Molly G, and Lexi B. Robin M, Alex R, and Anne-Marie H. Kim C, Molly C, and Sydney L. And last, but certainly not least, Katie B. So let's do this thing. Ah, fall. It's the time of year that, Andy, you know I like to get cozy, (laughs) pour myself a nice cup of tea or a hot toddy, and dive right into a historical love murder. (laughs) It's been a minute since we did one of these. I think because we had our very talented guest on our Patreon. It seems like it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, because Nathaniel did it. So I think it's just been a, a while since yes. I got to research yes. one because Nathaniel did all the heavy lifting yep. on that one, which he it does want to come back probably later this month or in October for another special Patreon on the Salem Witch Trials. So that'll be really fun. But yeah, I haven't gotten to dig into a historical in a while. And you know, they're some of my favorites. I love biting a big old piece of history off and chewing it up. This case is very special to me. It was brought to me by my awesome nanny, Sarah. You know, Sarah. Yes. And when I first met Sarah and we were talking and interviewing, I told her what I did for a living. And she mentioned that she actually had a love murder in her family. And it was a very old one. So she said, I don't know what kind of information you can dig up on it because it happened a very long time ago. She said that her great, 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 great grandfather's first wife was brutally murdered by an obsessive and jealous Irish maid who worked for the family and was in love with Sarah's ancestor. What? That's how she told me the story. And I was like, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) 
No references needed. You're hired and bring over every single banker box you can find in your family's basement. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So she said that she didn't know a lot about it, just family lore, but she knew that the murderer, the murderess, was apprehended and brought to bloody justice when she was executed. Whoa. Did this all happen in New York? It happened in New Jersey. New Jersey, okay. And I found one of the sources we were using today when I started searching. It is a short book by R. Barry Flowers, whom we have used lots of his works before. It's like a tiny, like he calls it a true crime short. So it's a thin little book and it's called Murder of the Doctor's Wife. It's also on Audible. The 1867 Crimes of Bridget Durgan. So I found that and I asked Sarah, like you said, please bring me any information you have. Ask your family members, ask your dad. And she ended up sending me a family tree. And then she also had a couple articles, one of which was by Sheila Duane for irishcentral.com. Ms. Duane suggested that Bridget had been unjustly executed and was in fact innocent. Whoa. Yeah. So I'm like, wow, the plot is thickening here. Luckily for us, Ms. Duane also wrote a book called Bridget's Hanging, which will be our companion source today. Okay. So to kick it off, we're going to start with the most common narrative, basically the story that Sarah told me, the one that is most covered in the newspapers of the time period. It is the narrative that R. Barry Flowers writes about, and it's also included in an anthology of Women Who Kill by Ann Jones, which is where Sheila Duane originally came across this story. By the end, we'll talk about both narratives and we'll decide what we think really happened. Crazy. All right. So let's get into a real whodunit today. Bridget was born in 1844 in County Sligo in Ireland to parents Patrick and Hannah, the fourth of five children. By 12 years old, Bridget was already working as a domestic servant. At 15 years old, she allegedly had a romantic affair or some sort of sexual dalliance with the son of her employer. But the relationship was ended, unfortunately. In R. Barry Flowers' account, he said that the relationship was actually ended by Bridget's father, Patrick, who didn't think the employer's son was good enough for her. In other versions of this story, I've heard that the the family, the employers, are the ones that put their foot down, which seems a little bit more realistic given class differences. Yes. So at that point, Bridget apparently became dissatisfied with the difficult life in Ireland, which at this time, Ireland was still dealing with the ramifications of the Great Potato Famine. Yep. So she then stole some gold coins from her father and used them to pay passage on a boat first to Liverpool and then to New York City. Upon her arrival in Manhattan, Bridget found work with a family named the Daytons through an employment agency. The Daytons lived in New Jersey, and she remained with them for just about a year before moving on to new employers in late October of 1866. This was the New Market, New Jersey family of Dr. William Wallace Coriel. Dr. Coriel was a 40-year-old Civil War veteran who had fought for the Union and worked as a medic. His wife, Mary Ellen, was 31 years old, and the couple had a two-year-old child named Mamie. Mamie. Mamie, it was actually, it was one of those weird old-timey things where people named all their kids after themselves. So the child's real name was Mary Ellen as well, but her nickname was Mamie. Yeah, okay. Bridget was paid $8 a month for her work, which was considered very generous (sighs) for a maid at the time. 
<laughs> okay, so at least according to the site I used for my inflation predictions, that is more like $1,800 a month in today's money, which still doesn't sound that no. great. But she also lived with the family and had all of her okay. expenses paid. Okay, so yeah. yeah. So if you had all of your expenses paid, that's actually pretty nice. It's pretty nice and it's generous at a time where a lot of Irish immigrants were treated like indentured servants. Yeah. Or were indentured servants, rather. So a lot of people weren't getting paid at all. So this looked really nice, like a really, really sweet job. But, you know, for that sweet paycheck, she had to do a lot of work. Her primary jobs were cleaning, laundering, and cooking. But she also participated in manual labor, doing farm-type chores, and babysitting for little Mamie, who was reportedly very fond of Bridget. I'm sure it's nonstop. Nonstop. The family did also have a handyman, a guy named Asa Bush, but he did not live on site like she did. So he just came and worked for the day and then he'd leave. And she kind of picked up all of the extra slack. Bridget had met Dr. Coriel in a professional capacity when he had treated her for what he believed was catalepsy. Catalepsy is a neurological condition related to epilepsy. Symptoms include fits where the patient loses muscle control, bodily functions like breathing slow down, and the patient's body goes completely rigid. In some cases, the afflicted appear to be in an unbreakable trance-like state. Whoa. Yes. And according to historians, Bridget's condition was characterized, because it, it affects everybody differently, by fainting spells and quote sore eyes i didn't really know what that was but that was <laughs> what they said how it affected her and dr coriel said that it was linked up with her menstrual cycle so it was related to some sort of hormonal cycles crazy when she would have more of these fits and Bridget referred to her condition as the falling sickness is what they told her it was called when she was a little girl in ireland Dr. Coriel would also later say that he believed that Bridget's condition could eventually lead to idiocy, which oh. is an old-timey and very offensive term for brain damage because of repeated strokes eventually creating a profound intellectual disability. This is also, guys, the diagnosis of an 1860s doctor, so we have to take a very large grain of salt here. Dr. Coriel had reportedly been treating Bridget when she left the Dalton's employ because the Daltons were getting frustrated with her fainting spells. And they were docking her pay. It was the previous family. Yeah. And I guess they were a little too interested. She would later say they were a little too interested in her condition, like asking her if she'd gone to doctors, what treatments she's done, why wasn't she fixing it, in a way that made her feel uncomfortable. And so the doctor was so friendly and so nice and said, just come work for me instead. We need help. We have this two-year-old. We need a lot of help around the house. So this plus Dr. Coriel's allegedly kind bedside manner may have made Bridget believe that there was more of a future between her and the generous doctor. Yep. She developed something of a crush and began to believe that the only thing that stood in her way of being the new Mrs. Coriel was his position in society and hers, and of course, his wife. Of course his wife. <laughs> it's a big old block in the, on the road to love. How can you even get to the society and position and 
society without getting rid of the wife first, you know? Exactly. Exactly. One historian named R. Gregory Landy wrote, clearly Bridget confused the doctor's compassion with a romantic gesture fostering an intense but imagined attachment with only his wife standing between them. If the accounts are true, there was an almost immediate resentment between Bridget and Mrs. Mary Ellen Coriel. Oh, no. Mary Ellen was considered very beautiful. She was also very petite and unable to do much of the heavy lifting required as the mistress of a homestead. Almost all domestic tasks plus more fell on Bridget's shoulders. So I think there was some resentment that she didn't really do much of anything. She kind of played with her perfumes and her fancy soaps and read her women's magazines and Bridget couldn't read. And so she had this wonderful life of everything Bridget wanted, but instead she was having to do all the grunt work. And in turn, Mary Ellen found a lot of Bridget's cleaning and the way she did things dissatisfactory And the historians wrote that she did not care for her so-called, quote, dirty ways. Oh, yes. Bridget can't catch a break, huh? She she really can't, this poor thing. (laughs) By February of 1867, some three months after Bridget was hired, it was clear that she was not a good fit for this household. Bridget had been experiencing an increase in seizures, which rendered her unable to perform her duties for hours or days at a time. Yeah. Mary Ellen had compassion, but this is a hard time of being alive in the 1860s. And she required a maid slash housekeeper that she could rely upon and know was going to be able to perform her duties. So she pressed Dr. Coriel to give Bridget notice, which he did. Okay. This backed Bridget into a corner. Dr. Coriel had been the most kind, generous, and understanding employer that she had ever had. If the doctor who actually treated her, so who who understood her condition more than any other employer ever would, was firing her, then what hope did she have of finding a better situation where she could be gainfully employed? No. It is possible that she also contained a murderous rage for Mary Ellen, Because she had pressured her husband, who may have been the object of Bridget's affections, to do the firing. Yeah. It was just a powder keg of a situation. And Bridget is about to get her own episode of Yield Snapped. (laughs) Because that's what's happening here. On Monday, February 25th. Ah! Uh Uh-huh. Did you even know that when you did it? I knew it when I wrote it. I didn't know it when I started the story. 1867. So... (laughs) How much before you were born? 118 years before I was born. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 118 (laughs) years before Andrea Verbance graced us with her presence here on Earth. It was also the last day of Bridget's employment with the Coriels. She performed her regular duties, including the laundry. After Dr. Coriel left the house in the evening to attend a childbirth in a nearby town, Bridget allegedly got her bloody revenge on the mistress of the house, Mary Ellen Coriel. With a sharp butcher knife from the Coriel's own kitchen and a large stick, Bridget stabbed and bludgeoned the doctor's wife to death. Unreal. 
Yep. According to a book by Joan Bustin called Past and Promise, Lives of New Jersey Women, Mary Ellen's wounds, the description of which, took up a half column in the newspaper of the time. There were 26 gashes, tearing wounds, teeth marks, hair torn in clumps from her scalp. It was a horrific attack, and it pointed to a long and fierce struggle. She also suffered deep wounds to the neck that appeared to be unsuccessful attempts to slit her throat. Ugh. And, yeah, and terrible bruising to her face and all over her body. Oh, my God. Popular accounts then claim that Bridget set fire to the house with paper, rags, and kerosene, scooped up toddler Mamie, who was two years old at the time, and ran for help to the closest neighbor, an elderly cousin of Dr. Coriel's named Israel. She appeared on his doorstep. And this is, by the way, a very far distance. This is not a suburban next-door neighbor. Yeah, this yeah. means it could be anywhere up to a mile away. Yeah. And it's February 25th in New Jersey, and she showed up a total wreck on his doorway barefoot. She had run all the way to his house. Oh, my God. Yeah, so like full mental break. She was screaming at this time, and no one could understand her because obviously she was very worked up, and she had a very strong Northwestern Irish brogue. So it was hard for him to understand what was going on. They ended up going to another house that was nearby, and that was the house of a reverend and his wife. That reverend and his wife said that they were piecing together very slowly what she was trying to say, which was that two men had broken in and burglarized the home. She's blaming it on someone else. Okay. She's blaming it on somebody else. At first, of course, they're taking her word for it because she also showed up with the baby, but they did notice a couple things. They noticed, first of all, that there was blood on Bridget's skirt and that she smelled very strongly of kerosene. Yeah. And so did the baby. And the baby even had a little singe mark in her hair. Oh, no. Yeah. So they're starting to get a little suspicious. Locals rushed to the Coriel house to find the bedroom completely engulfed in smoke and no sign of the mystery intruders. They were eventually able to put the fire out and Mrs. Coriel's gruesomely murdered body was found. Suspicion began to get cast on the illiterate Irish immigrant, with Bridget not really helping matters by constantly changing her story about who was the culprit. So first she said it was two strange men that she had never seen before. Then she said, oh, actually, I do know them. I just didn't want to give them away before. So it's these two guys named Brian Doyle and Michael Hunt. And then when pressed more, she tacked on a scheming maidservant from another family named Anne Lennon. But all three of these people had solid alibis, which only made her look like more yeah. of a liar. Yeah. She then accused another Irish housemaid from a different household named Mary Gilroy. Mary worked at a home nearish the Coriels. You could basically kind of see the house from where she lived. So that's basically it. It was in the distance, but you could see it. And she didn't really have an alibi. So they did end up holding her in prison for as long as Bridget was also imprisoned to suss out whether or not she had been an accomplice in the murder. Okay. Ultimately, she was released. But Mary Gilroy will end up factoring very strongly in Sheila Duane's theory of what really happened. So keep Mary Gilroy in your head. 
An inquest was held, and a council of men, including Dr. Coriel, determined that Bridget would be charged with the murder and be tried in front of a jury of her peers. The stress of the situation seemed to exacerbate her condition, and her jailer reported that Bridget had, quote, seizures all of the time, and that she would fall over and remain unconscious for hours, and that blood and froth would run from her mouth. Yeah, not a good sign. No. Between fits, Bridget entertained many guests in her cell, from reporters to kind-hearted volunteers that sought to teach her to read and wanted to actually hear her side of the story. Okay. All of these visitors spoke to the newspapers, projecting their judgments of Bridget to all the world, almost certainly swaying future members of any jury. R. Barry Flowers wrote about one such visitor. This is from his account. It was a women's rights activist and fiction writer, Elizabeth Oak Smith. And she said, after paying Bridget a visit in jail, that she found her possessing very low human intelligence. Oak Smith, who had visited female prisoners across the country for years in order to obtain a better understanding of women in such circumstances, further characterized Bridget in a letter appearing in the New York Times in August 1867 as having the cunning and ability to conceal her real actions. And so does the fox, the panther, and many inferior animals. I don't know about panthers and inferior animal. I literally was just going to say, like, what is this girl talking about? Yeah, she's rude. Ms. Oaksmith is kind of rude. She said, whose instincts are not more clearly defined than those of Bridget Durgan. She is large in the base of the brain and swells out over the ears, where destructiveness and secretiveness are located by phrenologists. What are those three animals? I feel like I would, like, not mind being a panda or a panther. No. <laughs> It wasn't a panda. It was a fox. A fox oh, and a panther. foxes are super cunning and beautiful and smart. Yes. Well, that she's saying they're tricksy. She's tricksy like a fox, and apparently panthers are as well. So, but yeah, I'd like to be a fox or a panther. They're like super sexy. I mean, I know she didn't say panda, but I would also be a panda. You would be a really cute panda. Yeah. I think that was just you projecting that you want to be a panda. Well, the whole region of intellect, ideality, and moral sentiment is small. There's not one character of beauty about the girl. Nothing genuine. She's hardly human. Rough. Yeah, also, phrenology. Phrenology. Let's determine whether somebody is guilty and the basis of their entire humanity based on some lumps and bumps on their head. It's very scientific. Great way to do it. <gasps> Oh. On May 20th, 1967, Bridget's trial began. The prosecution argued that Bridget had an unrequited love for Dr. Coriel and a jealous hatred of his wife, who truly had his heart and was both prettier and above Bridget's station. When Mrs. Coriel urged Dr. Coriel to dismiss Bridget, Bridget snapped. At her first opportunity, she ruthlessly and brutally murdered the charming doctor's wife. Their main evidence was that the murder weapon, the knife, was found in an outhouse that Bridget had used shortly after notifying the neighbors of the alleged robbery. The spot of blood on her dress, three small cuts on her hand, and the big one was that a local dentist had taken wax imprints of Bridget's bite and claimed that her bite pattern matched the bite marks found on Mary Ellen's body near her neck and face. That's pretty uh, accurate. Yeah, it's pretty damning. Dr. Coriel testified for the prosecution, but admitted on cross-examination that he had actually seen the blood spot on Bridget's dress 
prior to the murder. And it was the result of one of her seizures. He's admitting, he said, I still think she killed my wife. There's no other option. However, that spot was already there. So that negates that piece of evidence. It's just a tiny blood spot, Doc. Do you really need to like wade into this one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The defense argued that the case was purely circumstantial. They said how the guy had collected the bite marks and compared them was iffy. It's not as technically sound as today. They didn't even, I don't even know if they had a photograph of it. I think they were just kind of holding up a wax imprint next to her body. So they're like, really, can we count on that? So if we get rid of the blood, we get rid of that. Also, another doctor said that the so-called bite marks could be the work of a small, sharp poker as well. So now they're saying that they might not even be bite marks. They also said, even if this is true, let's say that she did kill Mrs. Coriel. Yep. She has a history of having seizures that are affecting her brain. So maybe she's just insane. Yep. That's the defense. Like, we don't think she did it, but if she did do it, did she really know she was doing it? Could she control herself? Well, the jury did not give one fig about Bridget's condition, mental health or otherwise, and they delivered a guilty verdict. On June 17th, 1867, Bridget was sentenced to death by hanging. Between sentencing and her execution, also, Andy, I don't know what the last meal is. I don't even know what they gave her. They probably didn't give her the option. I think you're working with limited resources on this one. (laughs) So long ago, it really is. It's like 150 years ago. Yeah. So between her sentencing and execution, Bridget recanted her claim that Mary Gilroy was behind the murder and she was released from prison. Good. The two women were said to have a cordial and even friendly meeting after the release. Many people, including a Protestant preacher and the prosecutor, claimed to have received during this time period before she was executed Bridget's last confessions, which contained the admission that she had indeed murdered Mary Ellen. And the preacher, in his account, he said that Bridget claimed she did this because she hated all of her mistresses. She hated being below people, and she had built up a lot of resentment about her position in the world. Okay. Whereas the prosecutor said that he talked to Bridget and that she said that she had aimed to replace Mrs. Coriel, meaning she wanted to be the new Mrs. Coriel. Now, this seems Unlikely. These men did not publish these confessions until after she was already executed. Okay. Bridget was very Catholic. She was very Irish Catholic. And her last words before her hanging were, do not bury me in a Protestant cemetery. Do not have Protestant church members pray for me. So the fact that she would confess to a Protestant preacher seems very unlikely. Yes. And... She would also confess to the prosecutor that just successfully sealed her death warrant. That also seems unlikely, and it seems very convenient for him that her confession corroborated his theory in court. Yep. So we have to take that again with a big old grain of salt. What is certainly true is that Bridget Durgan was hung on August 30th, 1867 at 1015 in the morning. Thousands of people, including children, came to witness her execution. The effect was that people were treating this like some sort of carnival or a horse race or some big celebratory gathering. And people give true crime fans and podcasters shit for being sick, right? 
But like, guys, this is what people were doing just a couple hundred years ago. They were showing up and tailgating a public yes. murder. Yes. <laughs> so I think we're getting better. I think we're getting better we're getting as better. well. Yeah, many people were described as rude, profane, indecent, and they were jeering and screaming at Bridget as she was led to the hangman's noose. Oh, God, what a way to go. It's terrible. <sighs> so Arberry Flowers described the scene of Bridget's execution as a hanging that went as follows. Up she went with a jerk and the knot twisted to the back of her neck as her huge body fell to the length of the noose with a heavy thud. After hanging a while and turning slowly about, Bridget died, her pulse and heart ceasing together. Oh, God. Yes, and unfortunately for Bridget, they did not do a good job on the hanging, and instead of dropping her from a very high platform that would have resulted in her neck breaking immediately— she was slowly strangled to death by the noose. Oh, my God. Brutal. Terrible. After her death, several of the alleged confessions circulated, the ones I told you guys about, causing Dr. Coriel to vehemently deny that there had been any attraction or romantic feelings to or from either party, unrequited or not. Yep. He said, she never gave me any indication of feeling that way whatsoever. And he tried to get them to focus on his wife. He's talking to the newspapers and he's like, I'm in a grieving period. And Mary Ellen was the love of my life, the mother of my small child. Yeah. Focus on the fact that I lost the love of my life and not the salacious detail that is not true of Bridget being in love with me. Who was just hanged. So who was just hanged. But apparently Dr. Coriel did eventually buck up and get back out there on the single scene because according to Sarah's family tree, he married a woman named Mary Fisk Doolittle, and the two had another daughter named Clara Louise Coriel, who was Sarah's great-great-great-grandmother. Such a cute name. I love Clara Louise. Yeah. So without that terrible murder, Andy, Sarah wouldn't have been born. And I may have rage quit love murder months ago because I can't take care of two kids and do all of this research, guys. <laughs> so that is a very bleak silver lining on the murder of Mary Ellen Coriel. And I would like to give a big mid-episode shout out to Sarah, my wonderful nanny and child caregiver. So our Barry Flowers ends his book by writing... Bridget Durgan managed to carve out an infamous place in history as the vindictive other woman in an unlikely and imaginary love triangle. But is that true? Is any of it true? Well, author Sheila Duane says emphatically, no. Ms. Duane first came across Bridget's story in Anne Jones's anthology, Women Who Kill, and did initially believe that Bridget was likely guilty, but that the cards had always been stacked against her as a poor, illiterate Catholic Irish immigrant in a time period where there was significant anti-Irish and anti-Roman Catholic sentiment. So she decided to dig into the case herself and figure out what exactly was going on more than potentially Bridget just getting railroaded. What year is this that she started researching? It was published in 2016. Huh. So both of these were published very close together with Sheila just touching out our berry flowers. Yeah. Okay. 
So after doing years of research, Sheila concluded that Bridget was indeed not guilty and revealed the true murderer or murderers in her book, Bridget's Hanging. There's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care. A product that works wonders for curls might make straight hair limp and greasy. I personally deal with a lot of tangles with my natural curls and really want to figure out a way to manage them. As you know, Jesse, I am such a fan of zero-maintenance hair, just wash and go, so I'm super excited to learn more about pros. Yeah, I somehow have greasy roots at the same time I have these very dry, sad ends of my hair, and I've never been able to find anything that works for both until now. First, Pro starts by asking about you as a person with their in-depth consultation. Pros asked me really unexpected things like what was my zip code so they could see the environmental effects on my hair, which we have quite a bit of in LA, unfortunately. Yeah, slightly less so in the Hudson Valley of New York. (laughs) (laughs) Next, Pros analyzed all my answers and determined what unique blend of ingredients should be in every product of my custom routine. Together, Pros got all of my hair goals covered. So I got my custom shampoo and conditioner as well as a pre-shampoo hair mask that I absolutely never would have thought to order on my own. And now I'm obsessed with it. I have my eye on those hair supplements too to help with growth. So I'll probably go back and order those with our code today. Yeah, I really did it up with the custom Andy shampoo and conditioner, curl cream, and those root supplements. And I also added in a leave-in conditioner for my tangles because you know that's always a problem. But yeah, I love everything. They also sent me a cute little eye mask along with the order for free. Did you get one of those? Oh yeah, I did. I love it. Yeah. As a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon-neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care that you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash lovemurder. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash lovemurder for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. So let's dig into this. First of all, Sheila Duane places a lot of trust on the accounts of Mary Randolph, the jailer's wife who took care of Bridget, and... Basically, Mary Randolph said that she could not believe that this woman in front of her, that she was taking care of, bathing, feeding, tending to, who she found so gentle, simple, and tender, could have performed this bloodthirsty, very brutal murder. Okay. She said there were some things that just didn't add up for her, which is why didn't she have more blood on her body if she had done all of those terrible things to her? There should have been more blood. And that after an epic battle like that, would she really have had the strength to then carry a relatively heavy two-year-old child in her arms barefoot and run all around the town trying to get help? So in any case, Margaret Randolph started feeling that she believed when Bridget said she was innocent, and she ended up introducing Bridget to her good friend, Margaret Sullivan, who was a teacher, and Margaret began spending time with Bridget and teaching her how to read. Throughout these many hours of visits and interviews, they pieced together a bit of a biography, including who Bridget really was and what really happened the night of the murder. 
and who was truly to blame. So here's Bridget's true life story as dictated to Mary Randolph and Margaret Sullivan, and then much, much later in life, Sheila Duane. To begin with, even Bridget's surname was incorrect. History knows her as Bridget Durgan, but that was not, in fact, her name. Bridget's last name was Dagan, but no one could understand her Irish brogue, so she was called Durgan, and because she could not read or write, she couldn't correct them in any way. They're like, okay, so it's Durgan spelled like this. And she's like, Dagan, I, I can't do an Irish accent, but like, she's like, yeah, sure, Dagan. that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Oh my gosh. Oh God, I wish I could do an Irish accent. But yeah, so she had no way of correcting them. And all of the newspapers reported that she was Bridget Durgan. The name of our various flowers books is Murder of the Doctor's Wife, the 1867 Crimes of Bridget Durgan. I mean, that happened to a lot of people when they came it through did, Ellis it Island. Ellis it happened Island. To Ellis. My last name. What were you before? It was Verbanich. Oh. It had like a Z in it and everything. It was very Croatian. That makes way more sense. Yeah. They were like, yeah, for bands. <laughs> so her name was changed, obviously, and the incorrect last name stuck. Bridget lived a terribly tragic life that, as we know, culminated in her being hanged at the age of only 22. So young. So young. Her early years were plagued by extreme poverty due to the Irish potato famine, her family lived near starvation on farmland that was blighted with potato fungus. As a result, the family eventually lost their farm to British landowners when they could no longer make payments on the land. Rude. Ten-year-old Bridget worked for a pittance alongside her father and siblings unloading barges in a harbor. And the family was essentially homeless, taking shelter in warehouses, barns, and any place that they could get a roof above their heads. Eventually, Bridget's father got really sick and he could no longer work for a spell. So he moved the family into a workhouse, which workhouses were not a good place. They were essentially prison-like structures that would house down-on-their-luck people as long as those people were able to labor. Oh, my God. Nathaniel's favorite, I mean, it might be his favorite story of all time, is Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And I mostly remember this exchange from The Muppet Christmas Carol <laughs> and less the actual literature of Mr. Dickens. Are you trying to say that The Muppet Christmas Carol isn't literature? <laughs> I think it is. I think it's like my absolute favorite Christmas special. I love it so much. But he says, and even Michael Caine says this on The Muppet version, when they're asking him to contribute some money to a charity, he says, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And they say, oh, but Scrooge, many would rather die than go to a workhouse. <laughs> That's my Muppet voice. And then he says, then let them die and decrease the surplus population. Unbelievable. Scrooge, you're so unreal. <laughs> yes. So in any case, that is a reference to how terrible these places were. They were cold, crowded, unhygienic. There was never enough food to go around. And families were completely split up. They would split them up by gender, by age. You might not even see your family members. Bridget's entire family, except for her father, died of tuberculosis while they were housed at the workhouse. Ooh, TB. I bet that spread like wildfire in the workhouses. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, Bridget did survive. She was diagnosed with catalepsy, the falling sickness we've discussed. The workhouse doctor's treatment of this was to shave her head and cover her scalp with leeches in order to suck out the sickness. Uh, excuse me? Oh, yeah. I think that for young women, getting your head shaved against your will is already extremely traumatic. But then to have it covered with leeches. Oh, my God. I can't even. Like, my hair itches just thinking about that. Absolutely. It's disgusting. Disgusting. Well, later on, Bridget is telling this to Mary Randolph and Margaret Sullivan because Mary had to bathe her. And this was also the first time that Bridget ever got a bath. She said she always just kind of poured water on herself. She said that when she lived near the ocean and they would do barges, she would just walk into the sea and use a piece of fruit to clean herself because she didn't have soap. And so when she got to be in jail, she actually said that it was luxurious for her. She got hot plunge baths three times a week with soap. It was like a luxury for her. And... Mary Randolph tried to take off her cap, which she never removed. And she said, please don't do it. She said, well, I have to wash her hair. And when she did take the cap off, Bridget had these penny-sized bald spots all over her head. From the leeches? From the leeches. It seemed like they did this so many times that when Bridget was telling Mary Randolph about it, she said she could not count the amount of times they had done this treatment on her. She could not remember. And at first, her hair would grow back, but after the deaths of her mother and brothers and sisters, it seems like some sort of trauma had occurred and the hair stopped growing back. As a result, she never removed her cap, ever, because she didn't want people to see her patchy hair. After the deaths of their family members, Patrick, Bridget's father, pulled her from the workhouse and they began a journey back to Sligo. He told Bridget that he believed all of the bad luck that the family had experienced was because he had once removed a stone from a cairn that was built supposedly on the site where the legendary Queen Maeve or Mabe was buried. Queen Maeve was a warrior queen of Irish mythology. The legend has it that those who disturbed her grave would provoke a curse that would haunt families for generations. I mean, you can't disturb a grave ever. He was a child, so he said that he didn't know what he was doing when he did it. He no longer had the stone, but he told Bridget that he was going to go back to the grave and make an offering. Okay. That hopefully that would be enough. It wasn't the same one, but it would hopefully be enough, and then it would break the curse and the family's bad luck streak. But he told her that it was going to be a long journey. It was not in Sligo, but they were kind of headed that way back together, and he said instead... I'm going to take this journey by myself. It's going to be a pilgrimage. And you are going to take a journey too because I want you to make a better life for yourself. So yep. we're sending you to America and I'm going on this mission. Unlike the common narrative that Bridget had stolen gold coins from her father to pay for passage to the new world, Patrick had actually utilized a government program that was sending poverty-stricken so-called undesirables to America. It was called Transportation. I don't know if we've talked about it on this show, but it was also used for criminals. It was basically they just sent anyone they didn't want in their country or who was clogging up the workhouses over to the United States. Great. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a lot. It's a very loaded situation. We could make an entire podcast about 
the politics and the shittiness of transportation. But let's just suffice to say, for Bridget at the time, she was like, okay, well, it's going to suck, but at least I get free passage somewhere else. So Bridget set sail for Liverpool and then for New York City. It does not seem as though Patrick survived his pilgrimage, however. She never heard from him again. And at 20 years old, she was on the boat completely alone. He just kind of disappeared. Sheila Duane couldn't find any record of him dying or coming to the United States. So it seemed he just kind of disappeared. Yeah. He also had tuberculosis as well. So he might have just succumbed to it shortly after. It's also entirely possible that he told that story to Bridget, but he knew he was dying. Yeah. He was just getting her to leave. Yeah. So he could die alone. Yeah. So we have some other rumors that were set forth by Reverend Mr. Brandon, who was the one who made bank off of Bridget's so-called confessions. He said, of course, that she had stolen those coins and that is how. So we already know that's not true. So I'm going to tell you a couple more things that he said, and we're going to play a fun game called Four Lies and One Truth. And you try to figure out which one is the truth. Okay. One, that she had seduced the son of her employer when she was 15 years old. Two, that she had gotten pregnant by said person. Three, that she had had an abortion at some point in New York City. Four, that she became a sex worker in New York until she found the Coriels. Five, that in jail, she bit and flailed and fought against her jailers as though she were a wild animal. I thought number one was true because didn't she have an affair, a relationship with the boy from... No, that account was pulled from the Reverend's Confessions. Oh, well, you didn't say that. Well, I said this is the common narrative. It doesn't mean it's true when I told you that. But that is good listening. I have to give you an A plus for listening comprehension. I'll take an A minus because it wasn't right. (laughs) (laughs) No extra credit for you. So then I would say number three. Yes, you are correct. She did have an abortion. However, there is no known record of her actually ever having a relationship with her employer. And I'm not even sure if she was employed by a family at that time because it sounds like she was working on the barges and going to the workhouse. Yeah, she could also just be getting a lay, like whatever. Like a I guess she person. could be working for the family when she was living at the workhouse, but usually they had servants live in, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, or she could have just been getting a lay. You're completely correct. So, yes, it's true that she had an abortion, and that was her greatest sin in life. Oh, my God, yeah, as an Irish Catholic. Oh, my God, yes. So Bridget said, and she's telling this to Mary Randolph and Margaret Sullivan, that while she was coming to the United States, she went on the upper deck one night to get some fresh air because, of course, the lower deck area where she was being held, the steerage area, was just at night people were smoking pipes, they're drinking, they're getting messy, it's smelly, it smells like human refuse everywhere. It just was kind of gross. So she would try to go up to the deck and get some fresh air at night. And she said she usually tried to see if any men were there. She would listen and look. And if the deck was clear, she would go for a nice stroll. If there was a bunch of men afoot, then she would, for her own safety, stay in the berth. Yeah. Unfortunately, at this time, though, she didn't realize somebody was there. And she said she was walking on the deck at night and she was accosted by a man who grabbed her by both hands and spoke to her roughly in German. She could tell it was German, but she couldn't understand what he was saying. So she told Mary and Margaret that she remembered smelling brandy on his breath and that he was speaking and holding her quite forcefully. But then she couldn't quite remember what happened. 
she said that she woke up on the floor of a steerage berth the next day with the recollection of something happening, but she knew it was most certainly not consensual. And it wouldn't be until much later in New York that she would realize that this event had made her pregnant. Yeah. It's possible that she's leaving out part of the story and maybe she got drunk with this guy and he took advantage of her. It's possible that this guy is a real piece of shit, that she had a seizure and he raped her through it. Yeah. While she was in that trance-like situation. But it's also possible, you have to remember, she's talking to two God-fearing women of good social standing. Yeah. Who have vowed to help advocate for her and her innocence. And this is the 1800s, so she needs to look like a chaste victim, somebody worthy of saving. So it's also entirely possible that she did have a consensual sexual experience, but she has to make it sound like it wasn't or else they're not going to think she's worth saving. Yeah. We don't know any of those things. In any case, Bridget arrived in the port of New York City in June of 1866. She went to an immigration center called the Castle Garden, where new arrivals were educated in American practices and customs, where to find health services, taught how to avoid common scams, and they were also introduced to people who were looking for laborers. Okay. So if you wanted cheap labor, you'd come to the Castle Garden and get yourself an immigrant. Through this process, a family named the Daytons hired Bridget in July of 1866, and she moved to New Jersey. She was with the Daytons only two to three months before Mrs. Dayton began to ask too many questions about her falling sickness in a way that made her feel uncomfortable. She also started, like I said, this part was true, docking her pay for time lost during fits. Bridget quit, and she sought shelter in a railroad station that was also a meetup spot and refuge for out-of-work domestic servants and laborers. It also happened to be a hotbed of criminal activity with scheming scammers galore. It was here that she met Mary Gilroy. Mary, you might recall from the first half of this story, was not a good person. Milady was super not on the up and up, I gotta tell you. Mary was born in Ireland sometime between 1818 and 1824, though no one was sure what exact year because she so frequently lied about her age. Though she was Irish by birth, she'd been in the United States for 30 of her self-proclaimed 43 years, in contrast to Bridget, who had recently arrived. So she had very little accent. She spoke almost entirely with an American accent and just a hint of her homeland Irish accent. And Bridget, meanwhile, her accent was so thick that almost no one in New Jersey could understand her. Mary worked as a nurse, and she married a man who sold drugs illegally out of a push cart. Whoa. Yes. I think she was helping him with his business. I'd Because say. at some point, she was discovered having stolen a patient's gold ring and three flasks of laudanum. What the fuck is laudamin? It's opium. Okay. It contains several opium alkaloids, including morphine and codeine. Whoa. Yikes. Yeah, it was used as a pain medication and cough suppressant. Yeah. So she was caught stealing a patient's ring and three flasks of the poppy juice, <laughs> most likely to give it to her husband to sell from his illegal push cart. And the hospital, of course, fired her, and they did threaten to involved the police, but she told them if they did, she would involve the police and the press about some of their questionable medical practices. So they said, you know what? 
we're good. You just fired. Just get out of here. We're not pressing charges. So maybe one of those sketchy medical practices inspired where Mary and her husband decided to have their career go next because they became resurrectionists. What is a resurrectionist, yes. you say? <laughs> your, your little exactly. face said that for me. Well, it's just a fancy term for somebody who digs up recently deceased corpses from their graves and then sells the bodies to medical schools while keeping the earthly possessions for themselves. So it's not legal. Oh, absolutely. It's not legal. It would be casing a cemetery for funerals and then going back that night because it's all still freshly dug up. Then immediately digging up the corpse so that it's as fresh as possible and selling it through the back door of a medical school or hospital. Yeah, but why are medical schools and hospitals buying them through back doors? That's like encouraging and enabling the illegal business. That was one of those not ethical things they did in the name of science because they could not convince anyone (laughs) to give their beloved family members' bodies up for dissection, especially because many religions have rules against this, as we have seen from many of our shows about refusing autopsies. So they kind of just said, okay, this is definitely sketchy. And the people who are these resurrectionists that are selling us these bodies are sketchy, but we need the bodies. (laughs) Think about how surgeries will be improved and we don't have to experiment on live or living people instead. (laughs) Or animals. Yes, or I think this was a a for the greater good type of thing, which is why it was allowed, even though if the police did find out about it, they would be in a lot of trouble, obviously. So Mary's husband ended up getting caught at some point, and she was with him, but she managed to run away from the cemetery and evade capture. She was hardly able to dig up corpses on her own. So when he went to jail, she went into business with a woman who was allegedly a doctor And the two opened up a women's health clinic, I say in quotations, that was actually a front for performing dangerous, illegal, and deadly abortions. Oh, no. They said this woman that was her partner was a doctor. It doesn't seem like it because these were very, very bad abortions. Her husband ended up catching tuberculosis in jail and died upon his release. Oh, my God. This woman. It's Bleaksville, baby. Her second husband, Joe Gilroy, was also a real peach. He was a pickpocket and a middling con man whose specialty was robbing people on streetcars so he could jump off and make a hasty departure. (laughs) Andy, I now have proof that the Karma Fairy has been around as old as time because Joe met his gruesome end when, just before Christmas of 1864, He got into a fight with a man that he was trying to steal from and jumped off the streetcar hastily and landed directly in front of a team of horses that promptly trampled him to death. Oh, my God. Karma Fairy had her eye on him. She barely had to, like, she said to, like, like, just stealing people's life savings that they carried on their person back in the day. And she's like, you're going to get yours. So Mary stayed in New York for another year. She worked at the abortion clinic until her partner was arrested and charged with the murders of six women who had died due to botched abortions. 
It's dark. History is dark. In order to avoid prosecution herself, Mary became a domestic servant and beat feet to New Jersey, where she eventually became acquainted with Bridget. At the railroad station, Mary and her friend Annie Lennon took Bridget under their wing. Exactly why is unknown. Author Sheila Duane posits that it was either for amusement and not in the nice way, in the laughing at you, not with you way, or because they believe she may have knowledge of the Dayton family's finances to obtain with the intention of robbing them. Okay. Whatever it was, clearly Bridget felt comfortable sharing her growing secret and sin with her new friend. She admitted that she was with child and desperately did not want to be. According to this scandalous account, it was Mary Gilroy who first introduced Bridget to Dr. Coriel. And this was so that he could confirm the pregnancy. Now, this doesn't really make much sense to me about her timeline, which is why I don't question that she had an abortion. I question when it happened and how it happened that she got pregnant because other accounts say that she was with the Daytons for a year. No, that's... Yeah, she also worked for them. So it happened at some time on this boat and then she worked for them for like two to three months. And then I would think that it's at this point she would be showing, it would be pretty easy to confirm this pregnancy. Yeah. But I guess she's undernourished. So maybe she was hiding it. So I, I find this whole timeline confusing. However, she did have an abortion. There was some interesting introduction to Dr. Coriel at this point, but she said that Dr. Coriel did not do the abortion. Mary Gilroy did because she's a nurse. So she must have attended all of the abortions with the other woman. Yeah. This sounds very, very bad in many ways and extremely painful, but this is a reality. And women of this time and women of all times, there are some women who would rather die than face the societal pressures of having a baby or having a baby they can't care for in any way. I mean, Bridget could barely take care of herself. And some women, and clearly these women, were willing to risk death yep. other than let their secret be known, unfortunately. So in any case, this did happen. Dr. Coriel allegedly had nothing to do with the actual abortion. I'm sure she just told him she lost the baby. But he began at that point treating her for catalepsy because he became aware of her medical history and he began treating her for catalepsy. And that led eventually to the other narrative of him asking her to come be his family's housemaid. Bridget would later claim that the act of the abortion and the secret knowledge that the cunning Mary Gilroy had about her gravest sin would result in Bridget getting blackmailed into becoming a silent and innocent pawn in a greedy murder burglary plot. Bridget went to work for the Coriels around this time and countered public opinion that she had hated Mary Ellen she claimed to Mary and Margaret that she found Mrs. Coriel beautiful and interesting. She said that she was fascinated by her soaps and her perfumes and that sometimes Mrs. Coriel would read from her books or her magazines and tell her stories, which she was fascinated by. The narrative does completely skip over the part where Bridget was fired. For some reason, Bridget doesn't talk about this with Mary and Margaret which Dr. Coriel would later testify to. He said that his wife had fired Bridget after discovering her, quote, filthy habits. However, he also said that in his opinion, Bridget had always treated his wife with respect and was seemingly very fond of his child, Mamie. Dr. Coriel also said that Bridget demonstrated no animosity for being terminated on the night he left to see a patient in which his wife was eventually killed. 
Bridget claimed that sometime before the murder, she was made aware of a burglary plot, is what she thought it was, organized by Mary Gilroy, Barney Doyle, Michael Hunt, and Michael's girlfriend, Anne Lennon. You think Barney Doyle's Irish or? (laughs) Just curious. Just maybe. Just maybe. (laughs) He should like start a pub or something. Now, Andy, here's where it gets really interesting. All of these accomplices that Bridget had named did have motive for revenge against the Coriels. A New York Times article from June of 1867 stated that Mary Gilroy had had it out for Mrs. Coriel because she had once come over to the Coriel house to pick up some medicine and Mrs. Coriel had insulted her. Many people were said to be aware of the animosity. Mary was known not to let a slight go. She had a criminal past, and she had made some provocative statements to the district attorney after Mary Ellen Coriel was discovered murdered. She had said that even if she had known about the murder plot, she would not have raised a hand to stop it. And that, quote, if Dr. Coriel got another wife, she hoped that he would get one this time that was worthy of him and had a little common sense. So she really did not like Mary Ellen. Mary was also reported by the New York Times to have been seen harassing or subtly threatening Bridget while they were both in jail leading up to Bridget's trial. Apparently Mary's cell was above Bridget's and she would drop things into her cell. One reporter saw her dropping a ball of yarn into her cell, which evidently had some sort of cultural significance to Bridget. There was some mythology or messaging behind this that Sheila Duane spends a lot of time on why this was a sign to keep your mouth shut, essentially. And Mary did have a very iffy alibi. She worked with another woman, another maidservant type person who did not corroborate her alibi that she was asleep. She said that she saw her at a certain point and then she went to bed And then she heard some noises, and then later on, Mary was there, but she could not say for certain that Mary had not left. She did not know. And she did not believe necessarily that Mary had been sleeping in the same room as her during the entire time. She said it was also a little sketchy because they could see the smoke rising from the Coriel house far away from their window. And when she noticed it, the other woman... Mary Gilroy reportedly showed up at the window and said, wow, she really did it. It looks like Bridget killed Mary Ellen and then set the house on fire. I knew she was going to do that. And the other woman said, why would you assume that? Why would you assume from a fire that Bridget murdered the mistress of the house and then set the the house on fire? That's insane. And then that was exactly what people believed had happened. So she said, isn't that crazy that she just knew that? So Barney Doyle, another named accomplice, was the father of a child Dr. Coriel had treated when the kid was sick. Unfortunately, the boy had ended up dying. And Barney blamed Dr. Coriel, believing that his son had not died of the illness, but of Dr. Coriel's treatment. The other accomplice, Michael Hunt, had been living with the Doyles at the time of the child's death and was said to be also greatly affected by the tragic event. And then Annie Lennon was Michael's girlfriend and Mary Gilroy's best buddy. So that's why she was pulled into this whole plot. The whole rigmarole. Yes, this is a way more complex situation than the common narrative. Yep. Bridget claimed that she had become aware of the burglary slash murder plot on the day of the murder when Michael and Barney first stopped by around 7.30 p.m. 
She said that she tried to warn Dr. Coriel by asking Asa Bush, the handyman, if he was able to write. And he said he was able to. And she said, can you write a note to Dr. Coriel and get it to him? And he said, no, I'm going home right now. He's going to be back in a little bit. It's just a birth. Just wait for him and tell him what you want then. I got to go. And he left for the day. He would testify to this later, that she did ask him to write a note. Yep. So her story was that that was her trying to warn Dr. Coriel, please come home because I'm worried something's going to happen and they won't do anything if you're home in the house. However, this is weird because why, if she was ready to warn Dr. Coriel, why wouldn't she warn Mary Ellen, who is in the house and in danger? Yeah. When the men returned with murder on their mind, she claimed that Mrs. Coriel had told her to take the child, run, and get Dr. Coriel. And that was when she claimed she ran barefoot to Israel Coriel's house, stinking of kerosene and so worked up that no one could understand what she was talking about for two houses and a long time. By the time it was understood what had happened and the smoke was visibly rising from the Coriel house, it was too late. That's what she said. It was too late for them to catch the men in the act. Again, if this is even true, why hadn't Bridget alerted Mary Ellen? And why hadn't she told Asa Bush, this is really important. I'm yeah. really worried that these two guys are going to come and hurt me or Mary Ellen or rob the house. Author Sheila Duane believes the reason why she did not tell anyone was because Bridget's sole desire was to conceal the fact that she had an abortion. If she could convince the townspeople that it was just two strange men, she wouldn't have had to reveal the name of her co-conspirators who knew her secret. If she alerted Mary Ellen or Asa Bush and people tried to stop them, they'd say, well, I know something about her. Let's tell all the townspeople about her abortion. That's what Sheila Duane thinks was the driving motivation of her not warning anyone and then even after the murder took place, trying to stay mum about who actually had done it. So Sheila Duane points out that a big point against Bridget was that she kept changing her story, but in reality, she didn't. She always maintained her innocence. She just slowly and begrudgingly revealed who was actually part of it. Yeah. She wasn't changing it. She was saying, okay, well, the two guys, I know them. This is their real names. Okay, and was there anyone else involved? Well, yes, there were. There were two other women involved. Now, about the alibis, I can't really tell you. I know that they were supposedly alibied by people at the railroad station where people hung out. Yeah. We don't know if those people could have lied for them or not. So Sheila Duane thinks basically as soon as she realized that she was potentially going to die over this, that was when she came clean about the real people who did this. Furthermore, she points out that the so-called physical evidence against Bridget was very weak. Even Dr. Coriel testified that the blood spot on her dress had been there prior to the murder. Housemaids in the 1800s often had cuts or scratches on their hands because she was doing laundry. She was cutting, chopping, cooking. I mean, she also had to do some rough outdoor work. It'd be surprising if you could find yeah. a maidservant who did all those things and didn't have some small scratches and cuts on her hands. And then there was a witness to the dentist who had proclaimed Bridget's teeth a perfect match to the bite marks. And he said that the man made Bridget bite down and wax more than 20 times in different positions in order to find one that looked as though it matched. So he was looking for it. Yeah. As we know, it didn't really matter if the evidence was bunk or even if it really was Barney and Michael who had done the actual murdering. 
because even if it was true, she still hadn't alerted anyone. She maybe was there and she let them get away with it. And then she tried to conceal evidence by lying about who they were. I do think it's compelling that Barney and Michael were the actual murderers because Bridget didn't have any defensive wounds on her other than a couple small scratches on her hands. And everything that happened to Mary Ellen was horrific. She would have certainly put up a fight if it was just one other woman, even a, a woman bigger than her. But if it was two huge guys that come in with a knife and a stick, then she might not have even had a chance. Yeah. The other thing is that the stick and the knife, it seems weird that one person would attack her with both. It seems more likely if she had two equal injuries from both of those weapons, more, I mean, more than two, but they seem coming from two weapons, that it would be two people yes. that had attacked her yeah. with different weapons. Not to mention, I do kind of wonder if there was a sexual assault part of this. I was thinking about how somebody would bite a cheek or a neck where their face would have to be on their body. And they did not say that because obviously they believed it was Bridget, but the house was also burned. So I don't know what level her body was left in or her undergarments or if they put them back on. I don't know. That is unsubstantiated. It's not talked about in either of my accounts or various other articles. So guys, that's just my speculation about the bizarre placement of the bites. So yeah, there's a compelling narrative here that it could have been these two guys, but at the end of the day, it didn't matter to the judge at all because she still had helped facilitate this murder. And actually, public sentiment was pretty sure that she did it herself. Between sentencing and the execution, Bridget recanted her statement about Mary Gilroy's involvement, and the two seemed to have a friendly visit in prison upon Mary's release. And that, of course, would have been very odd if Mary was truly innocent. If you had nothing to do with this, you'd be fucking pissed. Yeah, and also this is after they decided they're going to execute her, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. She knows she's done for yeah. anyway. She also made a plea to the state to not remove her clothing or issue any sort of autopsy after she died. And Sheila Duane believes that these two decisions, recanting her statement about Mary Gilroy and asking them please to not remove her clothing and examine her body, was to, again, to conceal her greatest secret, the abortion, which Mary Gilroy could tell people after the fact, after she was gone. And, of course, any sort of examination of her body would prove that. And Mary Randolph and, and Margaret Sullivan said, why do you care so much? Because they asked her why she was recanting her statement when she had told them that Mary Gilroy was part of this. And she said it was to protect her secret. And she said that it mattered to her what people thought. But they were like, but God knows everything. And isn't God the one you're answering to? Why would you hang for something you're saying you didn't do based on some sin that you already are going to have to reckon with God for? Which is just really interesting that it was so important for people not to know this secret of hers that she went to the gallows. It was better to be considered a murderer than somebody who had had an abortion. With that, Bridget went to her death before a jeering crowd of drunken onlookers. Like I said, her last words were a plea to not be buried in a Protestant cemetery. After her hanging, lots of money was made by selling her so-called confessions to the public, which is just twisted because those confessions, which I do believe are mostly false because these two men, especially that had the two biggest accounts, had 
good reasons to try to sell those stories have become history now. Those accounts have become what historians point to as truth about the matter because they're believing somebody who says, I was there and I, I received this confession. Yep. So sad. It's crazy, but it happens. Though Mary Gilroy escaped the hangman's noose, she did not have a happily ever after. Sheila Duane found records of a Mary Gilroy being jailed for theft shortly thereafter the hanging, and then eventually committed to an insane asylum in 1880. She appeared to have remained there for quite some time, as census records show that she was still housed by the asylum in 1890, but then at some point there was no more records of her, but neither a death certificate. So, like Patrick, she disappeared to history. In Sheila Duane's research, she could not find evidence that Dr. Coriel had remarried, nor did she know if Mamie had ever married. She said she couldn't find any marriage certificates, so she was under the impression that neither of the Coriels... Yeah, but don't we have proof of that? We do, yeah, yes. So because Sheila. of Sarah's... Yeah, that's... I sent I sent the page to Sarah, and she's like, uh-oh. And so I was like, get your dad to write to her and say, hey, we're here. Look at us. But yes, because of Sarah's family, we do know that Dr. Coriel remarried and had at least one more daughter, Clara Louise, who became Sarah's great-great-grandmother. And I really do have to say, I give Sheila Duane so much credit. It is so hard to do this. Of course. So if you can't find a marriage certificate, I am not shading her at all. She did an an extraordinary amount of research. It's just funny because you have a direct connection to the proof. Exactly. That's how I found this case. Which So it's it's crazy. Yeah, I was getting through this book and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I get to the end, I'm like, wait a minute. Hey, (laughs) they're here. She's right here. She's right here. So that mystery is solved of what happened to Dr. Coriel's descendants. But the mystery remains. Was Bridget guilty of the murder of Mrs. Mary Ellen Coriel? I don't know. I definitely think the timing is suspicious. Yeah. I don't necessarily believe she had unrequited romantic feelings. But I do think that she her back was against a wall. And she was not able to find a new employer. I know that was her last day of work. So that's suspicious timing that it's her last day of work. She was never going to get another job like this again. She was scared. She had these associates, the people she had met at the railroad station, who all had their own reasons for disliking the Coriels. And to be honest, Mary Ellen being out of the picture, if she hadn't been implicated in the murder, would have been very good for her because by all accounts, it was Mary Ellen who wanted her to be fired, not Dr. Coriel. And then he would need more help more than ever because he wouldn't have his wife and he'd have a two-year-old who was reportedly very fond of Bridget. Yeah. So she had a good motivation. This is all circumstantial, but there was a very good motivation to get involved in this and perhaps she instigated and collaborated with Mary Gilroy or maybe Mary she was talking about it complaining with her friend Mary Gilroy and Mary Gilroy says why don't we just get rid of that bitch she clearly hated her that was her own statements to the New York Times well to the district attorney who said that to the New York Times so maybe she just got herself in a plot too deep maybe she did try to warn Dr. Coriel And then she just couldn't get out of it. I don't necessarily believe that she was the one who physically murdered Mary Ellen. What do you think? I'd imagine that would be hard for her. I think you're pretty spot on, though. I think it's the timeline and the circumstances are pretty, are all pointing to the master plan being to get rid of Mrs. Coriel. 
I mean, she also could have just been the one that opened the door. Yeah. Because if she knows that Barney Doyle hates her and her family, she knows Mary Gilroy hates her. She's not going to open the door to these people when her husband's not home and she's alone. But her maid can. Her maid usually probably does. Her maid usually probably does. So my gut feeling would be that there was some level of involvement. And I think she was She's only probably trying a, it, to it, clean herself of her sins with those two women before she dies. It seems like I agree. her confessions and admitting of everything while they're washing her, it's all very metaphorical to, you yes. know. So yes, I don't it know. is. It's it seems like it's probably it was probably her way to try to clean clean herself of her sins and that she was complicit in some way and she was telling a half-truth version of it because she did want her side she's of it also out. not like if she actually is having all of these prolonged seizures her brain isn't functioning at the level that normal people are and so she probably the half-truths to her could be her real truths that are not necessarily real <laughs> it did seem she was portrayed as somebody who could be taken advantage of very easily yeah and swayed to different ways of thinking. So I think it was only then that she realized she was in really big trouble and she had gone along with this, but then she had to change her story around to make herself appear more innocent. Well, regardless of whether Bridget was the murderer or just part of the plot that resulted in Mary Ellen's murder, I think, Andy, you and I can both agree that she was the victim of economic and cultural bigotry. Yep. Not to mention the pervasive environment that people didn't even know how to put words on yet of misogyny, xenophobia, and ableism. And Jones pointed out that around the same time, there was another high-profile murder trial that occurred, that of Lizzie Borden. However, Lizzie was an American woman of good education and social standing in her community, and she was acquitted on basically the same type of circumstantial evidence that ended up getting Bridget killed. And that was in New England area too, right? As well. That was, I think, Fall River, Massachusetts. So at the end of the day, we learn yet again that the ye olds are not that much more different than our modern times. Sadly. Power and privilege still get you out of hella trouble. Sadly. Sadly, indeed. In conclusion, I'd like to give a big thank you to Sheila Duane, to all of these researchers and investigative journalists and historians who go back through history and try to ferret out the real truth, just not the common narrative, to give voices to victims and people like Bridget and an immigrant woman who was definitely railroaded whether she was guilty or not. And talking about the standard historical narrative of what we think the truth is, it's always important to examine that. And as the world and society evolve and more things come to light, there might be new perspective on these things that we think are the truth. Absolutely. It's so important to keep our minds open and to keep looking at things through new lenses. I'm really glad we had that opportunity today. Even when I tell you guys something, question it. I really do. I look for everything. I look up everything I can, but you never know. There's always another side to the story. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one in your family gets love murdered. Love you guys. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.